This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you actually from Parliament House on Ngunnawal country. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined by press gallery legend Michelle Grattan. So much to talk about PK, the Albanese government sort of being jet propelled into parliament this week by the success of that two days job summit, a political success at least anyway, with some good ideas set in train, I think. But, uh, you know, once you get back into the real world, reality bites. Before we get to the political reality, though, PK, you've got to tell us about the Press Gallery Midwinter Ball. Last night in Parliament House, a shiny affair. You were there. I've seen some pictures. A real who's who after that two-year gap in the ball, thanks to COVID. What was it like? The PM gives a speech, the opposition leader gives a speech. They're usually quite funny. How'd they go? Well, I've been to a gazillion balls and it was one of the best. And really? Yeah. Now I wished I'd gone. Uh, yeah, it was one of the best. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think the fact that there haven't been balls because of COVID, that's one of the reasons. So there was a sense of excitement that finally people could uh, go to such an event. There was also a, a different spirit in the parliament because we've had an election. There's a lot of new members. They were all very excited yeah. to come. So there's always the freshness of new eyes. Uh, and I've spoken to Liberal front benches and Labor front benches in the morning as, you know, I get up early like you used to, Fran, and I see them in the coffee queues and they, everyone was quite like, everyone was said there was a buzz about it. Now, a couple of things about the ball. The Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader both give speeches. They are always meant to be off the record, although sometimes people leak on them. I won't leak because that's the rules and I was in the room. Uh, and they're meant to be funny, you know, they're, they're funny and they're quite well scripted. And and both of their speeches were actually really funny. One thing I will break the rules on because it is so obvious that I think just <laughs> try and get grumpy with me, press gallery, you won't, is that the... The the jokes about how many jobs everyone's doing um, in the wake of the Scott Morrison ministerial affair. They they were there were a lot of jokes on that, but uh, Did most Peter of them make many of them. I made it a general comment just then, Fran, very <laughs> deliberately, and just like the excellent journalist you are, you try to you try to nail me down to detail. I'll take that as a yes. Yes, um, it was great. It was a great event, and as I say, like lots of good spirits, lots of and uh, you know everyone knows I'm a bit bit you know what 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 what, what do some people call me a bit too woke? It's such a ridiculous word. I hate that word. I I hate it too. But I can tell you that because the parliament is becoming more diverse. It, I think that's part of the vibe of the room too. Um, I've been to these things for a long time. I think the culture is improving in those in those rooms. So I had a really good time. Marsha Hines was playing. She's always a legend. I mean, it was just a good night. Now, 
I don't know what happened after 11 because with my hours, I was out of there <laughs> Well, by you better 11. go hang out at that coffee queue because that's where you find it all out. I've been there a couple of times. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's the ball. Uh, but back to reality uh, yes. and a few people saying, ooh, you know, can I just address this? I just, I've just, i always want to uh, just address this. A few people saying, because I've shared some photos, as I would because I'm a bit full disclosure, I went, right, but saying, you know, it's a bit cosy with journalists and politicians we work with these people, we interview them, we write stories on them, we are robust. Just because we might go to an event with them does not compromise our independence and integrity. I can I took a photo with, you know, Susan Lee to Anne R. Lee. That doesn't mean that will change my approach to either of them. They are members of parliament, democratically elected. I think we should respect the institutions. Oh, and I mean, and we're the, all people, right? And this I, is a big chance more. to raise a lot of money. In this case, I think it was for Ukraine. Um, you know, it's a it's a tradition that happens in the US, you know, has for a long time. We've been doing the Midwinter Gallery Ball. I, I was organising one, the, the first one, way, way back, like 20 years ago, I think almost. Um, so, you know, I think there's this is a community of people. It doesn't mean we're all best friends and cosy. It just means we all share the same building and we came together for a shared purpose, which is to, you know, raise money for good causes. I think that's a great thing. Yeah, I think that's a very good element of it too. But, you know, there was controversy that fossil fuel companies had had uh, uh, sponsored the ball, a, a little protest. It wasn't really long, but Lydia Thorpe led, I think, just, uh, you know, it wasn't really a huge, I didn't even hear it, but uh, uh, that's been reported right outside the room. Absolutely, people can say that. Um, yeah. David Crow, who is the press gallery president, addressed that issue, talked about how I think it's a kind of low percentage of, of the sponsorship coming from there. But, yeah, full disclosure, yeah, that's... That's yeah. part of it. You can make your own decision if you think it's right or wrong. Some independents were there, some weren't. It was, it was lots night. of good lots of good outfits. All right. Well, good night. Lots of good outfits. I've seen the pictures too. Back to Reality Bites, PK. The cost of living is really biting hard. By Tuesday, the news was all about the Reserve Bank raising rates again and the pain that entails for so many of us. Then the next day, there was good news. Strong GDP growth, 3.6 for the year. People are still spending, PK, and that means the inflation beast is really yet to be tamed. And that means likely more interest rate rises because that's the only lever the bank has. It's the pain spin cycle, isn't it? It's really painful. Yeah, the RBA is really trying to slow down the economy and halt the rate of inflation. That is that is their task. They've been very explicit about it. And this puts the government in a wicked position because they have a political problem. They have an upcoming budget. They were elected on on lots of expectations that they would try and ease the cost of living. And they can't do too much. And now the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is out there, as he says, having a frank conversation with voters saying he's not going to give you a whole bunch of handouts and, and, you know, free money in your pocket because it will ensure that interest rates will keep going up for longer. Uh, So he can't do that. But at the same time, he needs to uh, demonstrate that he is listening and understands that people are under pressure so they're going to have to be pretty targeted, aren't they, Fran, um, and, and still be very, very careful. Yeah, they're basically going to keep to their promises, cheaper childcare, not coming into July though, cheaper medicines, free TAFE places released, none of it on a mega scale. Um, so, you know, then the political problem is if they're not going to hand out the dosh after all this pressure over cost of living, what's their excuse for that? And as you say, it's it's responsible spending. They can't add to inflationary pressures. So to that end, we're getting the message loud and clear this week. It's already starting from the Treasurer and the Finance Minister, Katie Gallagher, here she is, that there will be cuts. 
We've got um, a whole range of wastes and rorts kind of focus that I'm trying to look at going through line by line. So some of those difficult decisions are how we reprioritise, how we make savings uh, and how we make room for all of the other good ideas that people are coming forward with, including many of the good ideas that were discussed at the Jobs and Skills Summit. So these are some of the difficult decisions that we are balancing up in the lead up to October. So the softening up has started. Waste and rorts will be Labor's focus. One spending item that doesn't pass muster, according to the Treasurer, and when he spoke to you, PK, is the Australian Future Leaders Foundation. Now, you may not have heard of that. It was a charity set up at the urging of the Governor-General, David Hurley. He lobbied hard for it, we know. $18 million grant, it's going to be scrapped. It was a, The Morrison government approved the grant without you know, going to tender. This will be scrapped. Effectively, I think, anyway, PK, killing two birds with one stone. It saves money and it sends a message to the Governor-General that the government of the day is not so happy with him after signing off on Scott Morrison's many secret ministries. that fair to say, do you think? Yeah, I think it's beautifully put. I think that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, and also it's a you know message around Scott Morrison too, who was lobbied around it and um, ending something he wants to do. Look, the budget's going to be, uh, there's a lot of political language being used, you know, dealing with the, the rorts and waste of the previous government. I really tried to press today the Treasurer in my interview, and when I say today, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, on whether it would just be just one-offs, you know, getting rid of pots of money, sure, but structurally, what are they willing to do? Structurally, are they willing to look at this budget um, with, you know, ballooning costs in some areas and uh, baked in, um, you know, situations where basically there is just not enough revenue to pay for some of this stuff? And he said... This is a two-budget strategy, and look to May. May will be building the case for some bigger structural reforms, and I thought that was quite an insight into how the government's going with some of this. Now, what those changes might be, um, I don't know. We can discuss it. There's a lot of things they could do. You have to build a political consensus first, though. In terms of this first budget, they're not going to be um, going that bold. Yeah. And then just to quickly remark, if I can, on the opposition's approach to all of this, well... The opposition, I reckon, has not got its story right at this stage. I spoke to the shadow treasurer, Angus Taylor, about all of these issues. He was saying, where's the government's plan, plan, plan? I heard the word plan a lot. And then I, put I heard it too. A lot of plan. And then I said, so do you support the childcare uh, reforms because he kept saying they don't even start till July. That's not going to help anyone. I said, so that must mean you, you know, you you think they should happen in January. He wouldn't commit to that, but he was criticising that they were happening too late. Ah, oh, I reckon you've got to have a cleaner line on that. Do they want more spending on this? brought forward or not. Yeah. Now, they say it's all up to the government. Well, you can't just criticise without having something alternative to say, and that's going to become an increasing problem. Yeah, look, I think what we're going to see, I thought it was so interesting, Jim Chalmers talking about the two-budget strategy now, the October-May budget. I think we're going to get the election promises fulfilled uh, to some degree in this budget, and then anything else outside of that, any big idea, any change will happen in May once they can sort of bed down some credentials that they're being a responsible Labor government. That's how I think it'll play. Should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. <laughs> Michelle Grattan, Chief Political Correspondent with The Conversation and Professorial Fellow at the University of Canberra. Welcome to the party room. Hi. 
Good to be here. Yeah, welcome back, Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, the government flying high this week, I think, after this job summit and some pretty strong polls too to kick off the week. Now, as we talked about last time you joined us, you were at Bob Hawke's summit, National Economic Summit, back in 1983. How do you rate this one, now we've had it, in comparison in terms of atmosphere and outcomes? I think both summits set up the respective governments uh, for the immediate future, and that was important. In terms of uh, the atmospherics, uh, the big difference, of course, Fran, was the one that's been much talked about. Back in 83, there was one female at the summit. That was Susan Ryan, a a minister. This time it was 50-50. And, of course, a lot of the talk was about issues concerning women, how to get more into the workforce and uh, the sort of uh, conditions needed, the fact that the feminised industries have very low pay and that something needs to be done about that. So the the theme of women was uh, very dominant this time and uh, not so much or indeed uh, at all to any significant extent in 83. Michelle, I would love to hear you personally reflect on watching that change in your life. Seeing one woman on the floor back then and now seeing what we do see, which is incredible. More I've been than 50%. This week. More than uh, this 50%. week, I, mean, I saw Claire O'Neill downstairs with her baby, a very senior Home Affairs Minister. The culture has changed so much. Absolutely. And I think that uh, back in the 80s, there was really very little talk about the the masculine, the maleness nature of the culture. It it wasn't uh, a big issue in, in terms of... Of government, of course, we had seen uh, the the feminist movement, and uh, that had been important. But in terms of the economic debate, I think that uh, that women were very much in the background, and the need for uh, a great deal of participation by women in the labour force was was not uh, a major issue. That focus on gender equity and gender economics, Michelle led to calls on the floor there to unlock the power of female workers uh, with, for instance, universal childcare, which goes further than the childcare moves the government will fund and announced in detail in the in the October budget, but also uh, extending paid parental leave to 26 weeks. That got a lot of debate and a lot of support. The government says, great idea, but they can't afford it now, so they're not going to do it yet. But this pressure will continue to mount. So do you think PPL or or universal childcare will be on the government's agenda midterm? I mean, there's structural problems around it too. You've got to get a workforce, for instance, and as we saw this week, the childcare workers striking because they only get paid $21.85 an hour. You know, no wonder we're having trouble attracting enough early childcare. Well, that's the lowest rate. Some can get more than that, but yeah. Well, I think uh, what we saw last week and and what we will see into the uh, medium term is uh, a clash between these issues affecting women Women, involving women, and also on the other side, of course, the budgetary pressures. And I noticed that Jim Chalmers made a remark at the end of the summit that uh, he was uh, glad to see the the ministers keeping the purse, purses shut or something to to that effect. And the government is very aware of the budgetary pressures. Now, as to the the childcare issue and and the pressure to bring that forward. 
Chalmers gave uh, as a reason for not doing that both the cost but also operational factors, uh, not just the lack of childcare workers, which of course is a major, major issue, but also getting the new arrangements into place. And Is that fair enough, do you think? Well, I think the combination of those things, uh, it is probably fair enough. We're talking about six months mm. difference because it comes in mid-year. On your issue, Fran, about the extension uh, to make it a universal scheme, well, that does run into questions of, uh, of of equity of another sort, whether higher income earners should have all their, their childcare uh, paid for. It's interesting, isn't it, though? We have universality of public education, in a sense. I mean, anyone can send their child to a, a free, public, school. A free yeah. public school. And if we're talking about this more now, recrafting childcare in terms of early childhood education, you could argue it's an extension of that, I suppose. Well, you could argue that, but of course, uh, there are cost factors. And some would say, well, there are these other equity factors of a different sort. Yeah, but I think at that point you make is a really relevant one, Fran, and watch this space. That's where this debate's going. Uh, there is a professionalisation of, of childcare now, and some people have been resistant to that, but that's where the world trend is going. Mm. And so if that's the case, and we do see it's, it In other words, what you mean by that, PK, is it's not just childminding, it's actually child education. Yeah, yeah. and, and that, that line I thought was quite potent from the union this week as a, as a political line as well, which is it doesn't, you know, they don't turn five, go to school and all of a sudden start learning. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and that's obviously very true. Let's park the domestic issues and head overseas, if you like, or at least our relationship with the world. Uh, foreign affairs is tripping the government up this week with the Solomon Islands continuing to be a very difficult relationship to manage after it dogged the Morrison government during the election campaign. So this is the background. On Tuesday, the Solomons government slammed Australia's offer to fund elections next year, calling it an assault on its democracy and an attempt at foreign interference. I mean, really, this statement was extraordinary. <laughs> this all originated from an interview on RM Breakfast, which the opposition was quick to attack. You have to ask, were the Solomon Islands aware this was going to be made public? Were they informed in advance of that? How long did they have to consider this offer? I'm curious as to whether this offer has been around for some time because the Solomon Islands statement seems to suggest that it was only made last week. So that was the Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Birmingham speaking on RN Breakfast. Now, Michelle, he's saying there that while the offer itself was appropriate, uh, that, that you know, there's bipartisanship there and there's precedent too, he claims it was poorly handled by the Albanese government. And we've heard this before, this poorly handled relationship with the Solomons. Now the shoe is on the other foot. Michelle... Was it a rookie mistake from the foreign minister or the government? What's going on here? Well, I think the underlying message here is that this relationship is very hard to handle. Uh, it's the, the Solomon's government is very unpredictable and uh, the Australian government is obviously anxious to make all sorts of efforts to get the relationship with the Solomons and indeed the whole Pacific region on a, a, a better basis, a more solid basis. We know that uh, it's influenced not just by uh, the issue itself, but also by the uh, Chinese moving into the region in a, a pretty big and progressive way. Uh, but whatever Australia does, I think under either government, it, it's going to be a, a rough path. So I don't think that there's a, a particular fault in the handling of this, but it takes 
delicate judgment and even if good judgment's applied, then things can blow up. Yeah, and, and you're right, the underlying tension is really China, isn't it, in this relationship? That's what's changed the, the atmospherics between Australia and the Solomons. China's also a factor in our relationship with East Timor. We had the East Timorese president... Uh, Jose Ramos Horta this week also suggesting Australia need to be careful not to be lecturing because, you know, a country like East Timor is free to have relationships with all sorts of people and China is investing in East Timor. I think there's a sense that Australia really has uh, dropped the ball there in that relationship with all the tensions of the last few years. Um, but, Michelle, in terms of, of China, the Ambassador Xiao Qian was on 7.30 this week hinting at a future meeting between Prime Minister Albanese and Xi Jinping, possibly at the G20 in November. Would that be a trap for Anthony Albanese, do you think, or an important thawing of relationships? How, how tricky will this be? I think it is tricky, and I think that uh, the Prime Minister would be very aware that it's tricky. And so far, he's handled the Chinese uh, overtures, if we can put it like that, uh, well, I think. He, he's made it clear that uh, Australia wants to see a loosening, a, a winding back, a, a dropping of the restrictions that uh, China has uh, imposed on Australian uh, trade before it really is convinced that China is serious about a thaw in the relationship. So Australia wants to stabilise this relationship, but it's a bit like the the Solomons. It's a a, a big scale of, of, of that unpredictability that the Chinese one day send out positive signals, another day there's uh, uh, an attack uh, from them. So it is a very unpredictable situation. It's a very hard situation to manage. And I think that Australia and the Australian government just has to uh, treat it um, cautiously, welcome uh, positive signs, but make it clear that uh, it's not going to be played in this situation. It's not going to be uh, taken for for a mug. Mm. No, taken for a mug. Good way to put it. Look, I just want to note a few other things that have happened this week that I that usually I'd love to spend an hour on, but we'll just <laughs> note them and I'd love to hear uh, some comments from you, Michelle. First one is the voice to parliament process and an announcement we're recording this on a Thursday by Linda Burney, the minister for, I think it's a 21 person grouping that will be that indigenous leaders, people like Marcia Langton, Noel Pearson, Megan Davis, many other prominent names and Ken Wyatt, the former indigenous affairs minister to figure out, you know, consultation around the question, the timing crucially, but still, we're hearing some negativity from um, certainly the Greens in terms of rhetoric, even though they've got an open mind and they're not against it on the record. And also Peter Dutton's opposition um, raising some questions and still not committing. Where is this going? I don't think anyone knows, Patricia, exactly where this is going because it is uh, getting some attacks from both the left and the right mm. of politics. Uh, it's... It's really got a long journey, I think. It is wise for the government to be as inclusive as possible in uh, working out the details. I think any involvement by Ken Wyatt is a good thing because uh, he is uh, very committed to making progress and uh, would be nonpartisan on this. Where Peter Dutton finally lands, well, probably he doesn't know it at this stage. Uh, it 
it's going to be a, a tricky uh, navigation for him. I think uh, as we sit here now, it is hard to know whether the government can muster the required majority in a majority of states to uh, get this referendum across the line. Uh, there is momentum, there's no doubt about it. There is goodwill for putting recognition of Indigenous people into the constitution. But on the other hand, uh, there will be a lot of debate about the detail of how the voice would work. And people will want to know uh, a fair bit about it uh, before the vote. At this stage, I think people just haven't tuned in or, or many people mm, yeah. just haven't tuned into this at all. It's all very vague in people's minds. And of course, it's not front of mind at a time when other issues are much more dominant in the electorate generally. Yeah, I think that's fair enough at this point in the cycle, but that's going to have to change. Um, Michelle, next week in the Parliament, the Attorney General will finally introduce legislation for the National Anti-Corruption Commission. The old government had promised to do it and never did. Mark Dreyfus will. There's been a lot of consultation with the crossbench and others. One thing those others and the crossbench will demand is strong action around a whistleblower commissioner. That was uh, in Helen Haynes. She's a crossbench member and independent. Uh, that was in her private member's bill. The government, as I understand it, has no plans for whistleblower changes yet. It's not going to get to that till next year and it wants to do it separately to this National Integrity Commission or Anti-Corruption Commission. Helen Haynes is also lobbying to be co-chair or deputy of the committee. There'll be a cross-party committee this will be sent off to when it gets tabled next week. Convention has it that the government and the opposition fill those roles, Michelle. I don't know about you, but I reckon it's time to break that convention with a crossbench the size we've got it, with Helen Haynes having done all the work on the bill that she did last year. If anyone deserves to have a lead role in this, it's her, isn't it? I agree with that, and I think she's certainly on the case. Uh, whether she's uh, optimistic about uh, making progress on uh, things she's putting forward or not, uh, she is determined to hold the government's feet to the fire on these issues. I think this week the um, government was in a sort of neutral position about the, the commissioner issue, uh, from what I heard, I think, in question time. On the... Uh, co-chair, I, I doubt very much whether they would uh, uh, agree to a co-chair, but certainly I think there's a, a very strong case for her to be deputy chair. Of course, that would involve an, an argument with the opposition. The opposition's already, as I understand it, said privately, no way. So I'm not sure how this gets resolved, but it's just convention, isn't it? Uh, yes, but... Um, Nevertheless, uh, conventions can be uh, can also stand in the way of things, obviously. Yeah. But uh, the crossbench, of course, has uh, now um, many more numbers, and uh, the government arguably has a, a case to be good to them, be nice to them in this situation, as it was in accepting those uh, small amendments to the climate legislation. But We'll see how that works out. However, I think the important point is that Helen Haynes is willing to point to the need for safeguards for what will be a very powerful body, uh, both safeguards within the body, but also in the sort of scrutiny and the regime for scrutiny, which is set up around it. Mm. 
Just before we let you go, um, Michelle, this week a former coalition staffer who claimed she was abused while working for the former government, the Morrison government, released details of her $650,000 settlement. Now, Rochelle Miller said she was subject to bullying, harassment and discrimination while working for former ministers Alan Tudge and Michaelia Cash. Uh, The finance department notes in the settlement the payment was not an admission of liability or fault by the Commonwealth and Michaelia Cash and Alan Tudge have rejected the allegations and a second inquiry concluded there was no evidence that Alan Tudge had breached the ministerial standards. Fast forward, $650,000, Michelle, Commonwealth money paid out and we still don't really have all of the answers. Is this an acceptable standard? Rochelle Miller released uh, some details, of course, of um, the settlement and she said that uh, part of her agreement to it was that she wasn't um, muzzled, it wasn't a, a secrecy agreement involved. So there was a breakdown of how much for health, how much for hurt uh, and so on. Personally, it seems to me, don't know about you two, but this is a hell of a lot of money. A lot. And I do think that uh, the officials who uh, dealt with this and uh, the, the politicians have said, not us, uh, they should be giving some details of how much the the quantum was reached because it is a lot and uh, it obviously set some sort of precedent and uh, it it would be interesting to see how it compares with uh, other settlements Mm. for other uh, issues. Michelle, I noticed the Prime Minister's called on the former ministers to explain the circumstances leading to the settlement. Are you saying it shouldn't be them, it should be the officials from finance? Well, I might be wrong on this, Fran, but my memory is that uh, the former government said it didn't know the details. Now, as I say, I stand to be corrected if that's no, wrong. No, they did say that, but, you know, I but suppose... But the deed of settlement notes uh, say that it was that it was negotiated in March under the previous government. But was it negotiated by officials or was were the ministers involved? Uh, that's a crucial question. If the ministers were involved, of course, those former ministers should explain. If they weren't involved, whoever signed off on this and uh, negotiated it before the sign-off, I think, should give details and uh, come in Senate estimates. <laughs> Bring it Come on. Come in, Senate Estimates. What a great way to end. Come on, Senate Estimates. Hurry up with your work. Michelle Grattan, the biggest brain in the building, let's be honest. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. Good to talk to you both. Thanks, Michelle. We'll move to questions without notice. we give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And it's time for our question time. And I've got to say, competing with real question times this week, ours still will be better. Uh, Les Dorothy Dix is here. Uh, John has asked a question. Can I thank everyone? We did a little call out on on the internet, on the internet, I sound 500 years old, um, on Twitter and lots of um, great questions. Sorry, I can't come to them all. In the (laughs) interweb. Hello, I'm now 700. Are we ever going to have a look at negative gearing again, asks John. Even some conservatives were talking about adjusting it before the election. Hell, I even saw a few supporting articles in Murdoch's outlets. Labor, Greens and Independents may have the clout this time. Fran Kelly, take it away. Well, look, I think we will, but not in a hurry. Labor was, you know, had fright. They took fright 
coming up to this election. After the last election clobbering of Bill Shorten, who went to the voters with a whole lot of tax proposals, including restraining negative gearing and capital gains tax. So there was no sign of that in Labor's pre-election pledge. So they won't do it in a hurry. But we're already seeing, I can't remember who it was, I think it might have been The Guardian, doing a breakdown of which MPs own how many houses. And that's all softening us up, I think, for a feeling in the electorate that you know, negative gearing gives too much benefit to a small number of people. Now, you know, when we were having this discussion in the past, it was noted that a lot of people who aren't rich own investment properties, you know, teachers, nurses, firemen and women own investment properties. You know, we shouldn't be um, denying them that capacity to save. Maybe that's true. But I think what we could do is put rings around this rather than cut it out altogether. Labor at the 2019 election, they were going to restrict it to new builds, Okay, that's not a bad idea, but you could easily cap it too, that you can have two investment properties or three investment properties, just not five or ten. Or I think there's a lot you can do in this space, and I think the pressure is on. As Ross Garno said when he gave that evening speech at the uh, Jobs and Skills Summit, you know, we have to address our structural tax base. We Basically, we are not getting in enough tax to pay for the outgoings that are coming, the aged care changes, um, a move towards universal childcare, for instance. We need to do something to broaden the tax base and to increase our tax base. And uh, this is one element I think should be looked at, and I suspect it will be, but not in a hurry. Yeah, and listen to that point I made at the beginning of the podcast when we were talking about budget strategy Jim Chalmers has not not at all specifically talked about negative gearing, but talked about structural budget reform now and put on the table that they need to make, you know, have big conversations around things. Things like that fit into that category and that's where there is the space. So not in a rush necessarily, but actually equally when he talks about a two-budget strategy and May next year, the earlier actually they make some of these changes and really build a consensus around it. It's different with incumbency being able to do some of these things. So I think watch that space. They know that there are big problems baked into the budget and I think they are going to look at some of these issues. It's going to be hard to do still, but I do think things have changed and there are nuances to the way you can do it. Anyway, so yeah, watch that space. That's it. Keep sending your questions in. We got so many this week. It was fantastic. We love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app, which is the preferred way we'd like you to get it. I know there are other platforms, but the ABC Listen app is something that um, is really worth downloading also to <clears throat> follow RM Breakfast. It's gold. It's gold. I don't know how anyone lives without a PK. That's it from us this week. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.